So in, in Revelation 6, uh, we've had the seals, and we've gone through um, the first five seals. And remember, the first four seals was a horseman. With the breaking of each, was a, with the breaking of each seal, a different horse and rider comes out. Um, and then the fifth seal was that of the martyrs, the cry of the martyrs. And now we're in this sixth seal. Um, and the sixth seal is kind of interesting because there's a there's after the sixth seal, there's a pause. So, you know, Jesus has been going through, because remember, that's, who, that's who's been given, or that's who's actually taken the seal from he who sits on the throne. Jesus has taken the seal from his hand, or the scroll, rather. He's taken the scroll, and he's been breaking the seal one by one by one by one. He goes all the way through. We've got through fifth, the five of them. Now he's going to break open the sixth seal. But then after that, there's a bit of a pause. So I don't, I don't want to get too ahead, of our, too ahead of ourselves. But what happens here in the 6, there's a lot going on here. Um, so let's read. We'll start reading at verse 12. And we'll go on down to the end of the chapter. Uh, um, my Bible has that 17. So these five verses, but there are a lot, there's a lot going on here. All right, so at Revelation 6 and verse 12, I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig leaf or a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Verse 14 Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains in the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? So as we have, have been going through the book of Revelation, one of the things that we bring up on a regular basis is that there are sometimes the things that are said, they are a straightforward, literal, that's a way to understand it. And if you don't, if you don't interpret it and take it as that literal thing, it doesn't mean anything or it can mean a million things. However, there's also many, many, and much of Revelation is that symbolic or the, uh, in that group text, I put, I used the word illusions. I didn't mean, I didn't mean illusions in a sense of like a uh, trickery or deception, but in a sense of being an illustration or or illustrative um, in that sense. And so we come to the, I think, this passage right here, is something that need that should be understood to have have both symbolic or figurative elements, but then also have literal elements to it as well. And that's where the rub is. That's where that friction is going to come to say, someone's going to say, okay, yes, these are all literal, or no, these are all figurative, or this is this is that, this is this. And as we said, is when we go through this, man, there's like 
you know, there's a bunch of different ideas and opinions of, of what these things actually represent or what they are. Um, I asked, I know people are busy, people are at work and it's short notice, but um, I asked if you guys could, read, there's, a, there's a few verses out of Genesis 37 with Joseph in his dream. Um, if you guys are able to read it, you can share with it, or if you just remember off the top of your head, Joseph has a dream, and he first see, he first dreams that these wheat, the wheat bear the wheat bales are going to bow down to him, and that those wheat bales weren't actually in his dream they were wheat bales, but they were symbolic of his brothers. They're symbolic of all his older brothers, and his one younger brother were going to bow down to him one day. Okay. And that was actually somewhat prophetic. He has another dream, and he dreams of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now, you guys, you guys tell me, if you read it or if you know it already, what did those represent in, in Joseph's dream? What did the sun and the moon and the stars represent? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So in his, in his vision, he sees the sun, the moon, and the stars. So that's what in uh, Genesis 37, it says, uh, Then his brothers went to feed their flocks. Oh, excuse me. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brother and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. And so he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to earth before you? And his brothers envied him. But his father kept the matter in mind, or he kind of, he, um, I think another way to say he didn't forget it. He, he kind of kept his own counsel and he kind of stewed on it and thought about it. All right. reason I bring that up is we know that throughout the scriptures, especially if you're dealing with dream language or vision language, or you're dealing with prophecy that a lot of times you're going to have a symbol or you're going to have an, an object or an item like the sun that it really doesn't mean the sun at all. It actually means it's representing somebody, something or somebody else. Okay? Back, back here in our text, in Revelation, uh, in Revelation 6... I believe that this also needs to be understood in conjunction, or I believe this is the parallel passage uh, to what our Lord describes in Matthew chapter 24. So if you got your fingers, if you're there in Revelation 6, and then if you could take your Bible and, and then also flip over to Matthew chapter 24. I think I have that one written on the board. Matthew 24, this is part of what's known as the Olivet Discourse. Does anyone know why it's called the Olivet Discourse? Because he, he, he tells it when he's on the Mount of Olives. So he's on the Mount of Olives, or some, and some, sometimes you'll see it as, actually as Olivet. And so he's, he's having this, this discussion 
uh, with his disciples. And so this is the Olivet Discourse. Um, and this is one of the last times he's going to preach to them uh, before he's crucified. So in Matthew 24, big, 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 cha- uh, big chapter. We don't, and a very long chapter. But the, the disciples ask him specifically about the end, and about the end of the age, about the end of the age. Then, so let's jump up to verse, let's start at verse 15. We're going to read just a couple pages out of that, or excuse me, a couple of verses out of that. And then we're going to make another jump over to 29. So verse 15 says, so uh, Matthew 24 and 15. Y'all tracking? Y'all with me? It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Verse 16, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babes in, the, in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been, sin- been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So now let's jump over to verse 29. Verse 29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming out of the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. All right. Really, what Jesus says here in 29 and 31, 29, 30, and 31, if you keep your hand there, and then like my, my Bible's big enough where I could roll the page over, and, I, and you could, I could be able to see both of them parallel side by side. Back over in, in Revelation 6, Revelation 6, verse 12, I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there is a great earthquake. Okay, if we compare that to what Jesus says in Matthew 24, he talks about the heavens will be shaken and he talks about the earth will mourn. Okay, then he goes on. So back over here in, in Revelation 6, 12, um, the sun became black as sackcloth. Was he saying verse 29 about that? What do you, do you guys tell me? Was, what does Jesus say in Matthew 24, 29? Yep. The moon will not shed, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give us light, and the stars will fall from heaven. Yep. And as a fig tree drops its late, late figs. I didn't know, I didn't know this until a couple years ago. I was, I was preaching through something about and talking about the different, oh, we're going through Jeremiah. And it's, it's interesting that Jeremiah uses different fig trees or different types of trees. And so I started to read up about, about, um, the trees and one of the trees particular is the figs 
And there is a species of fig tree that's, that's in the Mediterranean, and especially around um, Judea and, and Israel, that actually has two fruitings every year. They have an early fruit, and then later on in the year, they have a later fruit. And this is what it talks about is that light, that, that's why the, it gives the example or what uh, when, John, when John writes there is that the fig tree drops its late figs. It's that second harvest or that second fruiting that goes out. And this is probably an indication of, I don't think they're really talking, I don't think this is to be taken literally about a literal fig tree and you're watching the, the, the fruit drop off it, okay? But what's an indication of is that idea where you understand that there was an initial first fruit that went out, and then towards the end of the season, there's a second. This is a description of the whole church age. And specifically, I think it's talking about Israel and the Jews, in the very beginning of the church, I'm not going to, we can't put a percentage on there, but we'll say it's, I, I'm pretty sure it's well over 90%. What ethnicity made up the vast majority of the early church? What people group was saved, did the church come out of? Jesus. Jewish people, the Jews. Mm-hmm. It's okay, it's, it's, we, we can say Jew, it's not, it's not a bad word. <laughs> Jesus was Jewish. All 12 disciples were Jewish. On the day of Pentecost, the 3,000 people that were there in Jerusalem, they were there to, to observe a Jewish holiday, a Jewish festival. And 3,000 of them were added to the church. This is where I, in my own person, my, I have a very tough time, or I, I have a strong disagreement with those who want to make this hard separation between Israel and the church. They want to treat Israel as its own separate entity. Or they want to treat the church as its own separate entity. Where, yes, there are distinctions between the two, but without Israel, you wouldn't have the church. They, this is where the majority of the early church, the early converts, and that's what a lot of people thought. They, was, they were just a Jewish sect because a lot of them still did Jewish things, and they still kept Jewish traditions and rituals and festivals, and, but they believed this Jesus guy, who was also a Jew. So, but then we see that through the working of the Holy Spirit and through the providence of God, that not all Jews were converted, and though we see, now we see this shift that it went away from a predominantly Jewish makeup of the church, to now, and it's, I don't know if you could, it's kind of hard to put a, a fixed time on that, but I would say within perhaps maybe the last 17 to 1800 years, it's been a predominantly Gentile church. And through the majority of this, of this current era that we're in, it's a predominantly Gentile makeup of the church. However, we do believe that God will save a lot of Jews. We pray for that. The Apostle Paul prayed for Jews to be saved. And we do pray that 
that Israel, that they've been blinded in part, that, that they would stop being blinded, their ears would open up, their hearts would open up, that veil that's across their face, that's what Paul writes about in Corinthians, that even now when Moses is read, the veil's across, they're, they're, they don't see it. And we want that to be dropped. We need, we need that, that grace of God to pull that away and so that they can see that their only hope is Jesus Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Savior. So now we believe that towards the end of the age, there will be a, uh, there will be a, a bunch of Jewish people will get saved. And I think this was talking about as the, this reference to the fig in its second or its late figs. Uh, that's what it goes back. Now, this, when we talk about the symbolism, and we talk about the figures of speech, and we talk about the allegory and the analogies, uh, the great earthquake the sun becoming uh, dark and the moon becoming dark or the moon like blood, this is also a reference to Joel. And what's interesting is that I've already mentioned about the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, when they're speaking in tongues, the apostle Peter actually quotes an Old Testament reference. If you, it may be a little bit tricky to find, but it's going to be in Joel chapter 2. So if you get over to your Old, Old Testament... There's okay. There's Daniel. Daniel's got twelve chapters, so it's kind of easy to find Daniel. You got Daniel, and then you keep going, and you got the book of Hosea. Hosea is kind of a bigger book. That's that's got fourteen chapters, and then right after Hosea is Joel, and in Joel chapter two. Joel chapter 2 is speaking of the day of the Lord. And it's a long chapter. Um, and Peter pre actually, Peter quotes directly from this chapter. And what I got on there, Joel chapter 2 verse 28 is where this reference starts from. In Joel 2 verse 28, and it says... And it shall come to pass afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men, men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This is what the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, this is what Peter quotes. And this is what he explains to them on Pentecost. So in Acts chapter 2, there is a fulfillment there. That would, the outpouring the Spirit was the fulfillment. However, there's more of a promise. There's more of, of a prediction kind of sounds almost like, ah, maybe it might happen. I think, I think we kind of have that loose understanding of, of prediction. But this is a prophetic and this is a promise. And verse 30 continues. 30 says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming or before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, and the Lord, as the Lord has said, among the remnant who calls, or whom the Lord calls, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So here's this great and terrible, this great and awesome day of the Lord. Awesome in the sense of where we're, you know, not awesome like, oh man, that's, a, that's, that's great. Awesome in the sense of like, this is terrifying. It's full of awe. It's shock and awe, shock and wonder of what is going to happen. But as you guys have heard me say this before, and I'll say it again. When we are preaching, like as when, they, when these guys confronted Jack about his sin of not taking their tracks and not doing the Lord's work, um, and they talk about that repercussion of like the wrath of God. Whenever we preach, and when we preach the wrath of God, we must also preach the gospel, and we must preach the grace, and we must preach the salvation that is also there. And so Joel takes his whole chapter and talking about this terrible day that, that God is, God's wrath is going to be poured out. But there's still hope that whosoever calls upon the Lord will be saved. Even in the midst of this, of this wrath coming down and they look up and they see things that are not normal. You look up and the sun is black. Right? They got, you know, I've, it's funny as I've been, I've been tracking it for like a year now. Or, or I'm not tracking it. I've been, I've, been watch, I've been seeing the news articles about the, the um, eclipse. The eclipse that's coming, I think, what, in April? Um, April, and they're making, supposedly, it's supposed to be, yeah, Tara, Tara's all over, right? You, 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 it's on your radar? Oh, good, yeah. You know, you know science buddies? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, it's supposed that people are really getting hyped up because Oklahoma's going to be, you know, we're going to have a great whale to see the eclipse, and so they believe it's going to have a lot of tourists are going to come, and blah, 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 all this stuff. But... That is, and that is a significant event. That's an amazing event. If you think about when you wake up in the morning, you know, maybe you wake up early, um, like Bryce, like the grind don't stop, right? He's, he's, up, he's, he's up way early, aren't you? <laughs> exactly right. He's, but can you imagine, like, so you're up for a couple hours and it's still dark. You're up till it's like lunchtime and it's still dark. You go outside and there's no sun. It's black. You have no orientation. You, have no, you don't know which direction is east, which direction is west. You don't know what time of day it is. Alaska. Yeah, there's, there's parts of Alaska. There's parts of like North Pole, South Pole, where they don't see the sun for days and weeks on end. It's very disorienting. Um, some of the, some of the uh, interrogation tactics that uh, people, entities have used um, over the years does have to do with that sensory uh, when they do the, sem- the sensory basically they mess up with people's internal clocks by keeping them in dark rooms or they keep them in rooms where it is light all the time and it never gets dark and they, they literally lose track of time after several hours and then they get to a point where people have actually have gone to like this point of temporary, temporary insanity because they cannot orient of is day or night. Um, and it, it is very, it, we take it for granted because just the sun rises in the east, it goes across and it sets in the west. That's just the way it is. This part, I think this is one of the things that's gonna be 
what is showing is that it is going to be extremely disorienting and it's going to be scary because when the, the, the blood moon, and this is, okay, this is, I'm kind of going to deviate a little bit here. This is my own personal pet peeves. John Hagee has made a career. I'm not going to say a ministry. He's made a career about writing about nonsense. One of the things that he loves to write about is these blood moons. And he talks about the four blood moons. And I remember we were, we, were still in, we were still passionate church in Texas when the last blood moon came out. And he made his big deal about it. And it's going to be like, get ready because the rapture is about to happen. And when you, start, when, you put, when you peel back the onion and you go to his sources and you find out where he's getting his, his information from, it's from places that's not the Bible. And it's from places like he's reading some 12th century rabbi uh, from somewhere. And it's not saying that, that, it's not that those guys don't have some value. Um, but I'm not going to base my understanding of prophecy uh, off something that's outside of the canon. Or that's something that's a thousand years past to when Jesus actually happened. And you have a guy who has no acknowledgement of Jesus. So... Uh, I'll get, I'll, let me get back to <laughs> on the, the actual Bible part of it. So don't buy John Hagee books. That's my. All right. The, uh, so back over here in Revelation 6. I brought, I'm not going to read all, all three of these to you guys. I've, read, I've quoted from each one of these men before at different times. And, there's, and sometimes I, I agree like wholeheartedly with one... Like on one page, I might be in 100% agreement, and I turn the page, and I'm like, this dude's out of his mind. Like, that doesn't make, doesn't make sense. But anyways, so we got William Hendrickson for uh, More Than Conquerors, and then I got George Ladd, and this is just called Commentary and Revelation. And then this one is Douglas Wilson, and When the Man Comes Around. And it's interesting, is all three of these guys, when it comes to this particular passage, they all have three different interpretations and three different understandings of what's going on here. Um, Hendrickson, in More Than Conquerors, he views he he definitely associates this with the Day of the Lord uh, because of what is said in the last verse there in verse seventeen. Verse 16 talks about the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 17 says, for the, for the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And so that's what Hendrickson takes it from, is that this is a reference that what John sees here is that last day when Jesus comes back. So what we've seen, and one of the things we talked about, the, the previous five um, seals, has been going through the church age, okay? Now, there's some who understand that those five seals happened during the tribulation, during the seven-year tribulation, and all, all those are fulfilled in those seven years. The other way to understand that is it's world events, or as the world turns, as the world been, has been turning, and the calamities that humankind faces um, throughout the church age. For example, we just, we just prayed about the panhandle wildfires. It's not the first time that those guys have burned, and it probably won't be the last time. Uh, but right now, it's really bad. 
same thing like California, Arizona, they have wildfires and they get, they go pretty, it's pretty bad and pretty scary. But historically, it happens. It's almost kind of like this perpetual is going to happen throughout this. But he looks at this, this is the last final thing before the day of the Lord. Um, I'll read it real quickly. He says that the terror of that great day refers, of course, not only to the wicked, but whereas believers are going to be few in number, but at, at the time of the second coming, we can say that the world in general is seized with alarm. Uh, in its, this connection, it's interesting to observe that this final outpouring of the divine wrath upon mankind is described under the sixth seal, six, or rather 666 being a number of man, and is represented as affecting six objects of creation and is distributed among six classes of men. And so he's looking, say, if you look and see, if we count, so starting in verse 15, it says you have the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, and every uh, free man. So the idea is like there are six categories of men. And so basically this idea that if we look at 666, instead of that being the mark of the beast, what he's referring to is that this affects mankind. So it's kind of an interesting take on that. Um, so it says, notice the six objects that are enumerated in the symbolic description of the terror of the judgment. Uh, first, there's a great earthquake. Uh, and this we look at Ezekiel 38, Joel chapter 2, Amos, Amos 8, Matthew 24 and 29. Picture it to yourself. The earth rising and falling in rapid waves as an indication of God's power and anger. Th then in connection with this earthquake, the sun turns black as sackcloth and the full moon becomes as blood. The darkening of the sky often accompanies earthquakes, yet more than that is intended by this symbolic description. This is not just a mere darkening or even an eclipse, for the very light of the sun is blotted out and the moon assumes the color of blood. In the picture which John sees, this is all very real. So he takes it as these things are literally going to happen, that the physical actual sun is going to be blacked out the moon's going to look red, or it's going to be look. It's going to have the. It's going to look like blood tripping out, um, and the earth is going to physically, literally shake. So it's kind of interesting that. So he does. He's from an all mill, all millennial perspective, but he does take it as a literal shaking of the earth and a blacking out of the sun. George Ladd, who is a pre mill guy, George Ladd takes this as actually somewhat symbolic language. And when he says symbolic, it's actually fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And that's where he looks back and he says that uh, with the opening of the sixth seal, John beheld a set of phenomena which in prophetic and, and the apocalyptic language is the usual way of describing the end of the world. In view of the fact that many interpreters understand these words symbolically, to designate social and economic and political upheavals, the Old Testament prophetic background needs to be emphasized. And so same thing, he goes through Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 3, um, Haggai uh, chapter 2 verse 6. 
It says, in Haggai wrote, Once again in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. It says, Isaiah sees the day of the Lord as a time when the stars of the heaven and their, and their constellations will not give their lights. So he talks about this, that this cosmic disturbance, um, this, this cosmic disturbance is actually fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that will signif that signify the, the, the wrath of God is here on the earth and is going to be undoubtable. Was this one, so Doug Wilson, I think Doug is very interesting. A lot of his, lot of his understandings, I think, are, um, especially those of us who have not, are not familiar with a post-millennial or those of us who are not familiar with a preterist view, this might come to a shock, a uh, shock to what he's saying. But what he says here, he says, when the sixth seal is opened, we are dealing with a dark apocalypse. It'd be easy to place these events at the end of the world, since only the end of the world, we think, would have enough room for a disaster this size. But we tend to think this way because we do not let the scriptures instruct us how disaster symbolism works. First, there is a great earthquake, which in scripture is a regular way to indicate a divine visitation. So he's using the earthquake as basically is, is showing God's presence on the earth, that God has now injected himself on earth. So it's symbolic of that. He says, for this, see Exodus chapter 19, Isaiah chapter 2, Haggai chapter, chapter 2. The language that follows is desecration language or decreation de language. Uh, decreation language is a language of destruction. This collapsing solar system imagery is common in Scripture and always refers to the annihilation of a nation or a city and or a false god that that culture worshipped. Isaiah speaks this way of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 13. Later, Isaiah speaks of the destruction of Edom in the same way. Ezekiel speaks of Egypt's fall with these same terms. Joel prophesizes the end of Israel in the first century with the language found in Joel chapter 2. So the language, so what we just read from Joel chapter 2, Wilson is taken at as, as showing the end of the old covenant temple era and the beginning of the new covenant church era. All right. He goes on to say that in addition, John here uses Isaiah's pictures of stars falling like figs and as the heavens being rolled up like a scroll. And Christ himself predicted that refugees from the fighting in Jerusalem would in fact seek refuge in caves uh, and under rocks. And Jesus was drawing on Hosea chapter 10, Isaiah chapter 2, and uh, so forth. Uh, when he did this, or when Jesus did this, incidentally, that we have, we have Jewish historians that told us that this is exactly what happened in A.D. 70. The earthquake represents a revolution in government. It's an overthrow. The sun, moon, and stars represent the various dignitaries of the governmental firmament. Seven aspects of the created order are mentioned. You have the earth, the sun, 
the moon, the stars, skies, mountains, islands, and islands. In addition, seven different kinds of men are mentioned. Kings, great men, rich men, chief captains, mighty men, slaves, and free men. In short, the revolution accomplished here is total and encompasses everyone. So what he's getting at, he's got another page. He ta- he, he says, what he's talking about is that this actually was an overthrow of the Jewish order that was, uh, that was active in the day when Jesus was crucified. When the temple was still in place in Jerusalem, that what happened in AD 70, when, the Ro- when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and stopped the Jewish worship there, that was the fulfillment of what we're be, what we're what this was talking about in the Old Testament, and what is being said here in Revelation six. That's a bold statement to make. Um, on one hand, I can agree with, and, and I and I think he's I think he's making some great points and, and valid connections to say that these things are shaken to the point of where it's. We talk, you know, the, the cool kids now are saying like they're shook, right? Yeah. Uh, that was like, oh, that was like last week? That was like yeah, last yeah, seven years. Yeah. Seven years ago? Come on. Yeah, I've heard that. You're still that. watching Thomas the Tank Engine seven years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so they're shook. But yeah, that idea that, but it's, it's, it's a shake up where it's, it's, it's going away. And this is what we read of in Peter. Second Peter talks about it yet once more there's going to be a shaking and the things that remain are going to be done away with. There are some that interpret that to have happened already in AD 70. And I would say I think to an extent that might be right because we don't have that sacrificial system anymore. The temple is not in place anymore. The new temple, which is the church, the new temple of us being those lively stones that we are being built up as we are, we as this priesthood of believers being built upon Jesus Christ, our chief cornerstone, our foundation. And then you have the prophets and the apostles that we are built up and then we're going brick upon brick, line upon line, and we are being built up into this holy household of believers. But... The old bloody sacrifice was finished when Jesus Christ was killed on the cross and he poured out his blood for us. But he's, there is coming a day, and I, that's why I think that this is problematic if we say that this all was fulfilled in AD 70. Um, I, the way I read this, and perhaps I'm wrong, it's going to, when people see this, there's going to be no doubt what's happening and why it's happening and who is causing it and who they're seeing. There are some, I, there's some historical accounts from that AD 67, AD 68, 69, and 70. There are historical eyewitnesses account in AD 70 when people said they saw what looked like chariots in the sky. They saw what looked like 
horsemen coming out of heaven. They saw what looked like stars falling down on Jerusalem. And so because there's, there's those historical first-person witnesses and witness accounts, a lot of people have taken that to be the end-all, be-all, like, okay, that's all done, it's all wrapped up, and we don't have to worry about it anymore. I look at this and I see it as there's still a lot of people who don't know who Jesus is, and there's a lot of people right now that if we had an earthquake, they're not the first thing in their mind isn't that God shook the earth. These wildfires that are happening in the panhandle, they're not thinking that that's from the hand of God. There's going to come a time, I think, when these things uh, are going to happen, and there's going to be no doubt upon the people on earth that this is the wrath of the Lamb. Um, now, I'll say this, and I'll stop, so I'm not just rambling. Um, we do know that from Old Testament prophecies, and we do know from, like I mentioned, from Joseph and Joseph's dream, and then the other Old Testament prophecies and the other um, uh, illustrations that are given to us, that sun, moon, and stars are symbolic of people, of rulers, and even of the angels and demons themselves. And in fact, if, you would, if you're there in Revelation, if you turn over a couple chapters to Revelation uh, chapter 12, and some of you guys probably know, already know where I'm going with this, um, Revelation chapter 12, look at verse 7. It says, And a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and a dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was their place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accused of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night and has been cast down. And then they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to, the, to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, uh, you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath. Uh, because he knows he has a short time. And let me see. Oh, I missed I miss it where it said that he takes his, basically he, he, he wipes a third of the stars from heaven down with his fall. Oh, does that overlook that? Oh, yeah, yeah, four. So verse three says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Uh, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns uh, and seven diadems on his heads. Verse four says, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So a lot of people understand that. I think it's probably right, is this idea of the fallen angels. So these stars represent... Um, the angelic beings who would become demons. And that's what, so this idea that, so we know the dragon is Satan 
and that he basically is able to gather a third of the, the angelic host with him to have them lose their place uh, in heaven, and now they're cast, they're cast down. So, again, we're way ahead. It's already it's six chapters from now. But the reason I bring that up is saying that we do know that stars represent things other than those burning gas in the sky up in the firm or in outer space. Okay. Back in Revelation 6, I'll, I'll, I'll close with this. We can take what, where we got our hope in is in Jesus Christ and that He is in control. And we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that God is sovereign. And we believe that we are held in the hand of the Savior. We are held in the hand of the Father. We are held in the hand of the Son. And even though His wrath is pouring out, He still loves us. And we are still protected by Him. And whether if you believe we're going to be here till the end, or whether if you believe that he's rap- He raptures us out, the point is, is that we trust in Christ. And that this is from His hand. And that His wrath. And this is a, this is a point to consider and understand is that, Yes, we know that God is love. We know that Jesus Christ is the epitome of love and He is the manifestation of God's love to sinners. But we also know that this wrath, who, you guys tell me, who is this wrath coming from? God. Who specifically? Who, who, which, one, which one of the... Uh, think about it. Let's, let's, let's read it. No, it is Jesus. You're right. It's the wrath of the Lamb. It's the wrath of the Lamb. There is, um, in, you, don't, you don't have to turn here, because I'm gonna, I was going to read it real quick. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ has offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. The first time when, when he came as, the, as, the, as a suffering servant was to be the propitiation for sin, to be the sacrifice. And he came to deal with that, with their, to pay for the penalty of sin, to offer forgiveness for sin. The second time he's going to do is to get, come back and give that rescue and that salvation, have the redemption of the whole man. But he's not coming back as that merciful propitiation. He's coming back as that vengeful, wrathful executor of justice. And to that, we, we still say glory to God. And even so, come, come so, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. All right. What's some things that you guys thought of, things you thought about as we, uh, as we were going through here? A lot to take in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. The, uh... Does climate change have any effect on this? That's actually a great question. Does, does man-made global warming have any effect on this? Allegedly, it's going to have a big effect on California. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really good point, though, because 
he, the things that happen here are very specifically outside of what we understand as the order of our universe, which the scientists today worship. They worship the universe and worship science. Yes. All of this is showing we're very thankful God put in order the universe. We don't have to wake up tomorrow and wonder if the sun's going to shine. Is it going to be, you know, 40 degrees below the earth yeah. happens? But, you yeah. know, it's right. really, really cold because yeah. the sun is no longer there. Well, we don't have it was, a, it was a 70 degree temperature yeah. change within 36 hours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so that happens. But there is an order to the universe. The things fall when they fall. Mm -hmm. The stars don't fall because God put them there. Yep. One day God may say they fall. But that will be in God's power and God's timing, not because man did something and, you know, too much carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. Stars are falling from the stars. Mm -hmm. So it shows whatever happens, it's Him. Not us. Some some of us may be old enough to remember that before so before it was climate change, it was global warming. A few decades or a couple, not even a few, just a couple decades before global warming, they were talking about the coming ice age. They were talking to these scientists and these really smart people and us peasants says just have to listen to what their their not their knowledge that there is going to be this coming ice age and everything is going to freeze over and it's going to be horrific. Well, then, and then that didn't happen. The ozone didn't burn up. And, you know, aqua, good thing we stopped using Aquanet. And we, did, we controlled the, you know, the greenhouse gases and greenhouse emission and all this stuff. And then, lo and behold, now we have global warming, but now it's just called climate change. And, yes, we can see that in some small way, Yes, the stuff that humans do can have a direct impact on the, on the environment. Yes, we shouldn't dump out a bunch of toxin and, pollute, and pollutants on our vegetation and in our rivers and in the ocean. That's just idiotic. That's not good stewardship. However, that collective effort to clean the earth, that's not going to stop God's plan. There's going to be seasons. This is what God promised. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis. God promised that he gave us the moon, the sun, the stars, and seasons to mark the passage of time. And it's going to be all the way until he says, enough. So, there is a, so that's, that's right. It's like, yes, we are called to be good stewards. And so, in one sense, I, some, I used to joke about, yeah, I do believe in global warming. And I believe that God's going to set the whole thing on fire one day, and it's all going to burn up. It's all going to be melt away with a fervent heat that comes from God himself. And the answer, though, the hope is faith in Jesus Christ. And whatever, whatever our God does is right. Yeah. You're talking, you're talking to the wrong, wrong guy about that. <laughs> Once or only has happened once, or you think maybe we'll see? Like you said, I mean, there is there's something, there's something there in maybe seventy for sure. Yeah, there's that's a great there. question. You guys, you guys, you guys got about four minutes. Can you give me four extra minutes? Can I set the so <laughs> we know we know that okay from Adam, everyone comes from Adam, right? That's our that's what the scriptures say. That's our belief. Well, our anthropology will tell us that actually, and so as humanity grew. You had different. You had the you had one true religion always. God always had a witness here. 
But then you had these twist off and these perversions and these, and these false ideals come along. One of those is Hinduism. One of the gods of Hinduism is a god of creation and destruction and recreation. And is one of the motifs in Hinduism. Um, I forget. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. Back in the day when I was testing for this stuff, I knew it. Um, but one of the gods of Hinduism sounds a lot like what we read in the Bible. Where you have this creation. And then there's destruction. And then there's recreation. Well, there's, they're taking that from what God has always already promised of creation, destruction, recreation. And we see that promised. Now, with Noah, Noah's flood, or it's actually God's flood. It just happened at the time of Noah. It's the same thing as God's ark, and Noah just happened to build it and get put into it. But at the time of Noah's flood, this was God's pouring out of his wrath upon the earth at the time. And he did it to cleanse the earth. But then he did it to then to reestablish an order. What's going to happen, though, is what we can see is that there is going to come, there is going to be a, a decisive end to the world as we know it, to the order as we know it, to the universe as we know it. But then what's going to happen is that Jesus is going to remake a new heavens and a new earth. And it is going to be a absolute or it's going to be, it's a, it, there is a finality to that, that God is going to dwell with us. No longer is he going to be separate, but he's going to be with us. And because God will be with us, there will not be another, there won't be this, a, a perpetual cycle again. That's going to happen all over again. We're going towards that one final absolute. We have an absolute beginning. We have an absolute end. But this is, I'm going to get a little mind-blowing here on you for a second. That absolute end is actually a perpetual infinitude of, of eternity. All right. Done. Two minutes and 26 seconds. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right.